Our schools aren't sources of spread for the pandemic. COVID and the classroom, a decision for the district. It's just, you know, I'm scared for them, I'm frustrated. Teachers face tough decisions with students learning at stake. Having kids in person is better for the kids. Of course, it's wait in the car, and we were in the car for quite a while. The wait and the worry. A new plan for vaccine appointments. New concerns over COVID variations. Every opportunity for transmission allows for the development of a new variant. Carry gun with for protection. Why are you supporting red flag gun laws? Conspiracy and the Congresswoman who mocked a Parkland shooting survivor. It's absolutely appalling. I'll be filing legislation, a resolution to remove her from her committees. It's the big news of the week. This week in South Florida. Good morning, glad you could join us. I'm Michael Putnam. I'm Glenna Milberg. We begin with the struggle to educate schools in the time of COVID-19. And all eyes are on Broward this week, where an arbitrator ruled teachers may be required to get back into classrooms to meet operational needs. And bolstering that opinion, the CDC this week reported no significant spread of COVID in classrooms with proper precautions and evidence that all online learning is negatively affecting students. We want to talk about all of this with the Broward School Superintendent, Robert Runcie. You see him there, joins us. And right after we hear from Mr. Runcie, we will hear from the president of the Broward Teachers Union. Mr. Runcie, good morning. Good morning. Great to have you on. Good morning, Michael. Good morning, Glenna. Uh, pleasure to be on again. Great, great to see you guys. And you as well. Uh, Mr. Runcie, take us through this arbitration ruling. What does it mean? What does it say? Well, the, the arbitrator uh, has confirmed that the memorandum of understanding that we have with our teachers union agreement uh, that we've signed with them, which gives us the flexibility to grant remote work assignments to teachers based on the operational needs of schools, which are driven by the needs of our students. Um, that agreement uh, continues throughout the rest of this um, year. Uh, we have used that agreement to issue now over 700 remote work assignments to teachers that we know have real fears and very serious health concerns. Uh, that's probably more than any other district that we know of in the state. Uh, but we have to balance three realities that we are dealing with. First is, as you just mentioned, um, we know a lot more now about our schools and how to keep them safe than we did back in August and earlier in the pandemic. Um, and the data that we have in Broward County and our consultation with public health officials and medical experts um, clearly show that our schools are significant sources of secondary transmission for the coronavirus. Superintendent, Secondly, but before before we go through this litany, I, I really yeah. just want to drill down because sure. one of the, what, what the arbitrator said was to meet operational needs, but the opinion also says that the school really has to provide hard data on what those operational needs are. So is this a matter of students, the number of students coming back to school? Detail what that means and, and how do you, how are you going to show that you have to call those teachers, even those who may be feeling medically uh, not prepared to come back? Right, so, so the, the, the bottom line is if we have students in school, they need to have a teacher in the classroom with them, right? We can't warehouse students by putting them in cafeterias, gymnasiums, auditoriums, where they're looking at a computer screen while the, the teacher is remote. 
that's inconsistent with um, state law. It's in, inconsistent with our approved 2021 spring educational plan uh, from the Florida Department of Education. So when um, students are in school, uh, we have to have teachers there. Uh, and so depending on the number of students that are in school, who those students are is going to dictate what's required. So for example, um, you know, if I have a language arts teacher in high school that teaches six periods, um, let's say they have uh, 130 um, students uh, that they, they deal with, right? So if only 10% uh, of their students uh, come back, um, they will still need to be there. Even if there's just five, six, seven students per class period, those students will need a teacher for those uh, periods that they're in school. And what um, are you doing to to make sure that the CDC, what, what the CDC opined this week was that the classroom is not a significant spreader of the disease if properly mm -hmm. prepared for hygiene and safety. So what is the classroom in Broward doing to prepare to accommodate those teachers? Yeah, so what we've been doing in Broward uh, from the very beginning since we opened schools on October 9th uh, was making sure that um, all uh, students, teachers, all adults within our schools in the district, they're wearing masks at all times. Uh, number two, that we try to make sure that we're following um, distancing guidelines to the greatest extent uh, possible, that we continue to do extensive cleaning, sanitization in our schools. Um, all of those things have really paid off for us in terms of keeping the schools as safe as possible, and we will continue to do that. Um, right now, we have about 37, 38% of our kids back uh, in school. Prior to the winter break, it was around 27%. So we've had about 20 to 25% increase yeah. in the number of students that yeah. are back in our you, classroom. You know, Mr. Runcy, um, uh, clearly you're the educator. I'm just the reporter. But I've been reading all these studies, read a really fascinating column Friday in the New York Times by David Brooks citing studies that say that kids overall, even in a system where remote learning has been perfected or done pretty well like yours, that even then kids have lost so much learning over this past year. I mean, he cited a Stanford University study that said uh, the average student has lost one third year, uh, one third of a year in learning capacity. Uh, who has been learning remotely and three quarters of a year uh, in math. I mean, kids who have not been in school, no matter whether they're rich or poor or, you know, have parents who help them or not, I mean, most kids just need to be back in the classroom, don't they? That's absolutely right. Uh, we have uh, an emerging American tragedy here where we may lose a generation of students if we don't act fast and do what's in their best interest. I can tell you in Broward County, uh, we've seen the number of students who have uh, received failing grades go from 4% to 11%. The number of chronically truant students at the end of the first um, uh, marking period well, went from 1,700 to over 8,200. And most alarmingly, we have identified um, about 59,000 students who we know are not making adequate academic wow. progress. It 59,000 students 59, not making but, adequate progress. Right, and it's, it's an equity issue for us as well because 84% of that 59,000 are black and Hispanic students, 
24% are students with disabilities, another 34% are students um, who are English language learners, and almost 70% of them are low income students. Mm. So you have an, a, a, a gap that's continuing to emerge in this country um, that we have to resolve. I absolutely agree with the Biden administration's push to make sure that all schools uh, in this country are open within 100 days. Of course, we've been really pushing to get that done here in Broward County uh, and have started on that journey. Superintendent, we're going to be talking to Anna Fusco, who is the president of the Broward Teachers, in just a few minutes. But clearly, you know you are going to have a fight on your hand from teachers who, uh, I'm just going to throw that out there, teachers, by and large, prior to COVID, many of them feel unappreciated, put upon. Uh, this has just exacerbated what a lot of teachers feel. In Chicago, there's a, a threatened teacher walkout at the moment over exactly this. What is the plan if Broward teachers start retiring or, or opting out in some other ways? What's the district's plan to get teachers, qualified teachers, into the classroom to meet operational needs? Well, let, let me say, first of all, um, you know, our district and every district relies on our teachers. Um, there's an argument to be made that our teachers are essential employees. They're essential for the academic and social development of our kids. Uh, they're essential for our parents to be able to work and for our economy to function. So we absolutely need to do everything we can to make sure that we address the concerns they have. I am very well aware of the concerns um, that our teachers have, the health conditions and situations that they have. That's why we've granted over 700 of these remote work assignments to those teachers who have health uh, concerns. Um, we're gonna try to do the best that we can to balance all of that by making sure that we get as many of our teachers in school as possible to be able to meet the needs of, of our kids. The teacher issue is a broader issue nationally. Prior to COVID, um, the number of individuals going into teacher preparation programs at our colleges and universities have been in significant decline and free fall for a number of years. So there's a lot I think that needs to be done to improve that profession um, and, 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 and create a better environment, probably less regulations, uh, better um, pay, all of those issues. Boy, that's a big, that's a big picture issue yeah. that I hope you will come back <laughs> and we can talk all about that as well. Superintendent Robert Runcie, great to have you with us this Robert, morning. Robert, thanks really very much. Always time. good yeah. to speak with you. Yeah. Thank you. Up next, we take the debate to Broward's Teachers Union. BTU President Anna Fusco is going to join us live. That's next. All right, welcome back. Now we want to pick up the conversation about Broward schools with Anna Fusco, president of the Broward Teachers Union. Anna, good morning. Good morning Glad Anna. you could join us. Good morning, Michael and Glenna. Thank you. So you heard um, uh, Superintendent Runcie just now expressing concern for teachers, but saying essentially they've got to get back into the classroom and precautions will be taken to keep them safe. Do you believe that? So Mr. Runcie is perpetrating a myth. Our teachers have been back. Uh, his failed leadership has caused this chaos. Uh, with only 25% of our students that have returned back to the classroom, under his leadership, that is on him, not the teachers. The teachers have been back. Uh, October 9th, schools opened up, and our teachers have been back. 
So Anna, let me let me just um, what, what I'm not sure you were able to hear our conversation. Uh, what the superintendent said was 38 percent. Well, his number was 38 percent incoming for the well, next semester. But another thing he said, I think, really shocked us both here. 59,000 students mm -hmm. are are failing essentially because of this gap, this unequal ability to learn online. And if that data is true, that's on Mr. Runcy and his leadership because he flip-flops and changes the platform. Our teachers were told to figure out remote. Our teachers were told to get behind a camera and do remote. Our teachers were told to show up when that opened October 9th. They did. We've only asked of our most sick with cancer, sickle cell, uh, heart conditions to be looked into considerations to work with the 75% of our students that are remote. We have 15,000 teachers and over 92% we're back in the classroom starting October 9th, and now 100% are back. I'm not sure where the 700 are, but I'm telling you right now that our teachers have poured their hearts and soul for their students. So let me let me no, just ask you this about the. Um, I, I hear I hear what you're saying, but the the arbitration came from a lawsuit that that BTU had filed over this yeah. exact issue about the 1,700 teachers who had mm -hmm. these. Um, I'm not sure medical waivers is the proper terminology, but I think the vernacular everyone gets. So, so this arbitrator, what the arbitrator said was, it's not the arbitrator's in his power to decide whether it's a good or a bad idea for the teacher's return, but to decide what the parties have agreed to in this mem memorandum of agreement. So are you saying that the teachers did not agree to what's going on right now? The teachers, we got an agreement in MOU uh, with Mr. Runcie to look at the ones that have the highest risk factors that are severe, that have been backed up by doctor's notes and reviewed by the district's review panel and medical experts with cancer, sickle cell, heart conditions, organ transplants, and that they would be accommodated to be able to work remote to assist the students that are remote. Under Mr. Runcie's leadership is what has happened of the chaos. Again, his numbers, he said it this past, last Saturday, 27% are back. I'm not sure where it came to 37%. But as the media has been all over our schools, they've walked through classrooms. Look at your past segments, empty classrooms, one or two students. And yeah. to put uh, layover rooms, that's on Mr. Runcie's chaos leadership. Yeah. I, I, believe Anna, he, he, I believe he said next semester is what I believe he said. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Anna, uh, we are, let, let, let me jump in here and simply say it, it's pretty clear. it's pretty clear from the CDC that school kids are not considered at highest risk for COVID-19, for coronavirus. Of course, teachers, older people, uh, uh, may be at risk, especially if they have underlying uh, comorbidities, as they say, underlying health conditions. Uh, what about uh, teachers getting shots for coronavirus, for COVID? Uh, the governor has not made them a priority. Clearly, you believe that teachers, uh, who wherever they teach in class and staff, should be given COVID shots. Right. I've written a, a letter to the governor from uh, myself and under for Broward Teachers Union. I know our school system has also done that. Many of elected leaders have pushed that issue. We feel that, you know, everybody should be vaccinated. That that wants to be, um, but we have our teachers that are back in the classrooms and they have been back since school has opened. They've been back, they've been working harder than ever. And we're asking for um, considerations for the ones that have these seriously high risks to be 
thought of for the remote because it says it stands alone that 70 percent 75 percent of our students are still working remote and that might be probably the reason why that it's not spreading so much in the schools because it's not overpopulated the parents have said we're going to continue with remote until things get better the spread yeah, in broward yeah. is there Anna, i i i, I beg your pardon i i need to I need to jump in. I need to jump in. You're saying 75% of Broward students, you say, are still working remotely. All yeah. the studies that we have seen, some cited by Mr. Runcie, are that so many of these children, he said 58,000, you know, are, are failing. They are not succeeding with remote learning. Is it not your desire to get kids back in the classroom? It's our desire to get our kids back in the classroom. Our teachers are there. It's under Mr. Runcie's leadership that keeps flip-flopping the modalities of what the students will be getting. He said, get in your classroom and teach behind a computer. He said, get in your classroom and do it this way. Our teachers are doing what they are told. The principals are doing what they're told. This is under Robert Runcie's leadership of mixed chaos, mixed messages to the community, to the parents, to the students. The teachers are there. You tell them what to do, and they're trying to do it. He changes and flips the script every other day. So, Anna, it, what, what, do you, uh, what do you see as the way for these teachers? I mean, the te this, I think we're talking about a pool now of 700 teachers, I think, uh, were the, was the pool of teachers with medical issues that don't want to go, don't feel safe going back to the classroom. Is there a way, just like they taught prior to COVID, is there a way to accommodate them so that this effort right from the CDC to the state administration and now to the counties, an effort to get as close to 100% back in the classroom as possible? What do you see as the way to do that? Well, you do have as close as 100%. If he said he accommodated 700, we have 15,000 teachers. And Miami-Dade superintendent has 1,300 working remote, and Palm Beach has over 800, and they're making it work because they know the importance of our students that have chosen to continue to work remote from the safety of their homes deserve that individualized attention also. Remember, the teachers are back on campus. And it is only the ones with the severe illnesses of sickle cell, cancer, organ transplants, heart conditions that need that consideration to teach remote to the thousands and tens of thousands of students, 70% of our students that are still remote. That All right, Anna, Anna Fusco, Broward Teachers Union. Myth. We value your time and we thank you for being with us today. We'll be watching with you. Thanks, Anna. Bye-bye. All right, up next, the process for getting a, a vaccination in Miami-Dade may be getting better thanks to Miami-Dade Mayor Daniela Levine-Cava. She's going to join us next. Not Florida. The supply of COVID-19 vaccine continues to be limited, but the bigger frustration among those eligible for a shot seems to be this process of even getting an appointment. Boy, it is so hard, and then you get an appointment, and then you have to wait in an interminable line at a vaccination site. There are some that are better. Mount Sinai Medical Center, uh, the North Dade Medical Center, those sites have been better. But, you know, there are problems with trying to get a shot, and someone who is trying to make it much easier is Miami-Dade Mayor Daniela Levine-Cava, and she joins us now. Madam Mayor, good afternoon. Great to see you. Hello. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. 
So in your State of the County address on Friday, you announced that there is going to be this Miami-Dade County process where people can register. I mean, it's so logical, you wonder why it hasn't happened in six weeks. But now, you know, to your credit, you are rolling out this website. Tell us what it is and how it will work. Yeah, thank you, uh, Michael. And so frustrating it has been for everyone. And, you know, we have not had a consistent supply. So it's been really tricky uh, to, for example, not book ahead of time. You don't want to book appointments if you don't know you're getting the vaccine. The biggest issue is supply. We have a system ready to go if only we have the supply. As far as this new registration system, we will allow people to sign up just once and we will draw down from that list as the supply becomes available. But we will not be booking appointments until we get our allocation every single week. Uh, Jackson does the same. They also are setting up a system. And of course, the state, as you noted earlier, is also setting up a system the same way. Uh, by the way, the appointments at the county sites, no lines, no wait, very efficient. I'm very proud of the men and women who are staffing those sites for us. Uh, the demand is overwhelming and the supply is totally inadequate. Supply is the absolute focus of the issue on every single level. Mayor, you are making this county process much more centralized, which I think everybody was calling for, but that doesn't solve the patchwork problem because there's still yeah. the state sites and there's still yeah. the hospital sites and yes. people who are eligible still face this patchwork of places to Absolutely. go for appointments. So I we, agree with you, Glenn. Yeah, go ahead. Well, so I have created the centralized information site, miamidade.gov slash vaccine, also available in Spanish and Creole. And we now have ordered all dispensing sites to provide us with the information that they have. You know, the state is doing its thing. And uh, when the federal government gets involved, uh, you know, they'll do their thing. And the important point is the public needs to have a centralized source of information to not have the anxiety of constantly hunting. Yeah. Uh, so tell us the website against uh, Madam Mayor. So uh, and we will put it on our website. And is Very there good. a phone number that goes with it, too? Uh, yes, sir. I'm going to have to look up that phone number for okay. you. But it's uh, miamidade.gov slash vaccine. vaccine and in Spanish vacuna and Creole vaccine. Yeah. So the information is there as well as the phone number. And uh, the phone number uh, and, the, and the website will be opening up this week. We'll be creating that master registration list. And then we'll be back in touch with people as yeah. vaccine becomes available. Well, now, are, are you going to be, as it were, in competition with the state of Florida? Because on Friday, they announced myvaccine.florida.gov as a website where people can pre-register and sign up and get a yes. shot as well. Yes, I wouldn't call it competition. I would say that there are separate systems for signing up, the state centers as well as the county one. The state has the, the vast majority of the supply, so they're going to be able to vaccinate more people uh, at their sites. But we are through our sites at North Dade, Miami-Dade College campus and at the zoo we will be open for business as soon as the vaccine comes in. Our second shots are taking place at Tropical Park. But let me emphasize, we're also doing mobile units. We're taking care of public housing residents over 65. Even homebound who are under the county's care are getting 
homebound appointments. We know the demand for this is huge. And as there is more supply, we want to continue to roll it out to homebound as well. Let me, let me ask you something you may, I understand, you may or may not know this, but it sounds like what we're hearing as the Biden administration rolls out its pandemic um, plan, yes. it sounds like the trickle down to the states, this whole distribution system may be much more centralized under government auspices. Have you heard about what's to come? What, what can we expect that way? Yes. So I had the good fortune this week to speak to the new head of intergovernmental affairs and the person charged with the vaccine intergovernmental. And they are sorting it out. I'm sure you've heard that they were left with very inadequate information, but they are planning ahead to have federal super sites, as I understand it. And the important thing is this, no matter how many dispensaries there are, we want the public to be able to get that information in one location. We do not want people to have the anxiety on top of the COVID anxiety, the anxiety of hunting and pecking and constantly refreshing their uh, websites. This is not uh, good for anyone. So we are going to work hard as ever. Look, we're in a state of emergency in Miami-Dade County and I'm the incident commander. And that is why my executive order says, tell us what you have on hand, what are your plans for rolling it out, and we will share it with the public in a coordinated way. All right, so you're the commander uh, in charge in Miami-Dade County. Uh, Governor DeSantis is the general, as it were. It seems that he is making decisions. He's got to deal with Washington as well. The last week, I guess, we got something like, what, 306,000 doses given to the state, but it's up to the governor, is it not, to determine how those doses are distributed? Yes, yeah, so the governor has issued an, an order saying that those over 65 and frontline healthcare workers uh, and the firefighters that dispensing a vaccine are the first up. Uh, he will decide uh, when it's time to expand that to other populations. Obviously, there's all kinds of essential workers on the front line that desperately need this too. Right. Are you and, uh, working, maybe, are you, excuse me, are you working well with the governor? I mean, you are a congenial, collegial person. You're a Democrat, he's a Republican. Uh, is that making any friction there or are you getting along with the governor on this? So my uh, good fortune is to work with a, an Office of Emergency Management Director, Jared Moskowitz. We are speaking at least once a week with my staff multiple times. We're getting advance notice of the vaccine supply coming down, as well as what will be distributed through the county and through other sources. So we are now uh, coordinating that information, giving input. Uh, so I feel very good about that conversation. I don't know whether the Biden administration will change that and set national priorities. But for now, we're working with the governor's guidelines. I just want to go on record as saying I was at a conference with you both, with the governor at, uh, about Biscayne Bay funding, and the two of you both said that things were going very well and that there was compromise and working together. And that was, in this climate, that was really nice to hear and see. Mayor Daniela Levine-Cava, great to have you with us this morning. Thanks so much for being here. Thank, thank you. Thank you, you, Madam thank Mayor. You Let me just say on a personal note, I got a shot at the North Dade Medical Center run by Jackson. Boy, it was fabulous in and out in about an hour. That's the way it should work. Thank you. And we're working <laughs> with community groups to identify those most at need, and it's working great. Thanks okay, very thank much. Thank you, Madam Mayor.
All right, the effects of the pandemic have been especially hard on minority communities, and that came into sharper focus this week with vaccination statistics that came out. Dr. Hansel Tooks is on the front line of that topic, and he will join us next. It should come as no surprise that wealthier and mostly white communities in South Florida are getting a much higher percentage of the anti-COVID vaccine than black and brown communities. State and county records this morning show that gap got even wider this week. And for context and clarity on that, we turn to Dr. Hansel Tooks on the faculty of the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. His specialty is infectious disease, and it is so good to have you with us, doctor. Dr. Schuchs. Thank you, Glenna. How are Thank you? Thank you, Michael. Great to see I'm you again. I'm doing well. Can we start right there? I mean, this is such a glaring number. I pulled up some numbers. We can go through them. But essentially, uh, the in the people of color in our communities are getting vaccinated at a far lower percentage than the actual population sh uh, should suggest. It, is this... Is this something nefarious? Is this something that is just baked into institutional inequality? Fra frame that for us. I mean, Glenna, imagine if you took that percentage and you subtracted the workers at Jackson who are largely black and brown, what the statistics would look like. I think it's twofold. I think one is uh, access. I heard Madam Mayor speak about all of these amazing innovations in terms of online signing up. But right now, people who are getting vaccinated are over age 65, and there are tremendous barriers to using these sort of online portals that are akin to buying concert tickets. I think that hearing Superintendent Runcie was actually uh, very disheartening for me because when I hear about the struggling that kids are having, I think about the digital divide. They don't have access to high-speed internet, the same way people who are at risk, minority communities haven't had access to telehealth, didn't have access to online signing up for testing. So all of these things are worsening now that vaccines are being distributed uh, via online portals. So just the as second a follow up, is, would you, and I don't mean to interrupt you, but I, I just, as a follow up, are, are we talking about a racial divide or are we talking about income inequality that affects communities of color far worse? Right, I mean, so that's what I was gonna say. Aren't those the same thing? I, our city is still divided the way it was when my grandmother was a nurse on the colored wards at Jackson and when my mother grew up and wasn't allowed uh, in Brickell where I live. Those economic lines and racial lines are exactly the same as they have been for decades. Yeah, I imagine your mother must have been a nurse about the time that Thelma Gibson, the great Thelma Gibson, former uh, city of Miami commissioner, was, I think, the first African-American nurse uh, at Jackson. Your mother must have been shortly thereafter. Uh, Dr. Tooks, I mean, there is some history involved here. We're talking about people 65 and older and many black people, as many some white people, Remember the Tuskegee experiment where these gentlemen, you know, had syphilis and then they were told you're going to be treated, you know, and cured. And in fact, they didn't. They got a placebo. And I mean, that's sort of might figure into some reluctance to get a shot, would it? Michael, there is profound distrust in minority communities of the vaccine. And Tuskegee is one example of evil. Uh, what I tell my patients is we can't allow the evil that occurred during Tuskegee, we can't allow that to harm us today in 2021. But inequities in access to health care and poorer health outcomes are evident even in 2020 and 2021. That's why we see much higher rates of uh, black and Hispanic 
patients who are hospitalized with COVID dying. So all of that mistreatment continues to current day. It's not just in the past. And with that becomes the mistrust of the vaccine. The way that we can end the health uh, inequality is by increasing uptake among minority communities. We actually have been this week especially reporting on exactly that. And I think Mm -hmm. that kind of awareness really does go a long way to move the needle. Uh, I'm wondering what your take is on this, uh, at least Miami-Dade County's new way of getting people to be able to make appointments in a much more, what sounds like a much more equitable way. Not that that will solve anything if the supply doesn't get here, but but give us some, what do you think of that? Do you think that that will help? Well, so Jackson Health System has done an incredible job and the vaccination process is very well organized. My, my uncle was vaccinated there. Um, he said he was in and out in less than 30 minutes. Uh, so vaccinated in the hospital where he was born. The issue was, he texted me, was when he got his second shot and he was in the, the, reco- the observation room, he was the only black person there. What we have to do, I'm on inpatient right now at Jackson, and I do not have one white person on my census. It is important for the people who are outside of the hospital, who are coming to get vaccinated, that they reflect the people who are inside of the hospital, the community that we serve so that we can fulfill our, our mission to ensure the public health of our community. I yeah. guess the, the question is, How do we make that happen? Uh, So I'm always a a public health uh, physician. I like to meet people where they're at. So I was definitely heartened to hear the the mayor speak about mobile units. But it's as easy as in clinic. When I'm in clinic, I should be able to vaccinate my patients when they come see me there. We serve a a largely minority community in our ambulatory clinics. But at this time, we can't uh, vaccinate our patients. I think that a lot of things are going to change with the 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 emergency use authorization of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which is mm. one shot and doesn't have the, the cold temperature requirements, will actually be able to go into communities and bring the vaccine to people, listen to their concerns, educate them, and, and uh, you know increase uptake, the same way that we're going out to the, the churches and faith organizations now. Yeah. Yeah. Great idea. All right, okay. Dr. Hansel, so good to speak with you again. Last time was about your success with the needle exchange program and wish you success uh, in, your, in your work to come. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right, up next, the round table. It is time for the roundtable, and with us today, Melba Pearson, an attorney, former state prosecutor, deputy director at ACLU Florida, now director of FIA director at FIU's Center for the Administration of Justice. Rafael Yanis is an attorney and a political analyst from the center-right point of view. Friends both to the show, great to see you. Melba and Rafael, good morning, great to see you, or good afternoon now. Uh, Melba, let me begin by asking, we, we've got to deal briefly at least with COVID-19. Uh, it seems to me, I'd like to hear what you both think, that uh, almost every morning this week and for the past 10 days or so, Governor DeSantis begins his day with a news conference where essentially he praises himself, talks about what a great job he is doing with the vaccine rollout. And yes, we have a problem with supply. But our system is just terrific. And then you go, as I did on Friday, to uh, Hard Rock Stadium, and you see people have waited in line five, six, seven hours to get a shot. I mean, that's just not so great. 
No, it is not. And good afternoon. Thank you so much for having me on again. Very excited to be on with all of you. This is definitely a case of Nero fiddling while Rome burns. <laughs> At the end of the day, we should be having a centralized system for all of Florida to include anywhere where people can be able to get the vaccine, whether it be public, CVS, Walgreens, a clinic, you know, much like the doctor said earlier, there should be a centralized way that makes the vaccine accessible for everyone who needs it. And the governor has fallen down completely on the job and has also really been not transparent. Uh, I believe the Florida Surgeon General was at one of the press conferences and no one was allowed to ask him any questions about the rollout and, and what the next steps were. There was a lot of confusion uh, between hospitals and other providers as to yeah. how much supply they could get and all of that. You well, know, so that is certainly one point of view for sure, but with all the criticism that, uh, it, may I observe, that it often breaks down along partisan lines, mm -hmm. Rafael, Florida mm -hmm. as a state is actually by the numbers doing a lot better than the majority, I think, of every other state in the union. Florida is luckily doing well, but I think it's important to mention under the Trump administration, Ronald Reagan's famous quote, the nine most terrifying words in the English language are, <laughs> I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Unfortunately, it was proven true. I, I do believe the governor and our mayor have done a strong job of trying to allocate resources to South Florida and Miami-Dade in particular. But what Melbo is reaching out about a centralized effort, I, I have to agree the Biden administration has to really step in here with the Defense Production Act for the entire supply chain from everything from the needles, the freezers, not just the vaccine material itself and getting more vaccines approved through emergency use authorizations when it's safe to do so. Because vaccine distribution, we already have a network across this country called primary care physicians offices. And the sooner we can get the technology to permit our primary care physicians to distribute the vaccine, the sooner we can all get the vaccine in a timely and safe manner. Well, we hope that is part of the solution here. Uh, let's uh, change focus here and let's move on <clears throat> to this rogue member of Congress, however you want to describe Marjorie Taylor Greene, who Deranged. has made, uh, <laughs> I think, some vile anti-Semitic, uh, uh, anti human statements and uh, posted them. We saw her this week uh, in video that Fred Gutenberg, I believe, made, <clears throat> made available uh, harassing David Hogg, a, a survivor <clears throat> of the um, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas massacre. Uh, and now uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz is moving tomorrow with some other members of Congress to strip her of her committee assignments uh, uh, Melba, what is your reaction to this uh, member of Congress? Her actions are absolutely disgusting. She has shown herself to actually be a threat to democracy because of the fact that she had made statements and supported statements that indicated that President Obama and Hillary Clinton should be hung. Uh, she ha verbally assaulted Representative Cory Bush from Missouri to the point that she did not feel safe and had to move offices. Uh, one little discussed fact with regards to her uh, assault of David Hobbs is that she told him that she had a gun. Yeah. So that could rise to the level of aggravated assault. So she is a highly dangerous person in addition to being racist and anti-Semitic. So if the Republican Party, you know, who, who states that they are the party of Lincoln, they're the party of Reagan, and of, you know, trying to have that moral standing allows her to have quarter and cover within their ranks, 
then they lose all moral authority. And so it is absolutely imperative that she not only be stripped of her assignments, much like what happened to Representative King from Iowa, but that she be expelled from Congress altogether, because she cannot cannot serve the people of her state or of yeah. this country. So you just heard our friend, the prosecutor, Raphael, set up a criminal uh, process there. I wonder, though, if there is an argument to be made that the voters put this woman into office, and is it the voters who should be removing her? That's the argument that many Republican politicians are making right now, because the voters elected her in a primary you know, the Cook Political Report ranks their district as an R plus 27. No Democrat has a chance to win in that district the way it's currently designed. It's in the northwest corner of Georgia, reaching almost the tips of the Atlanta suburbs. And Representative Taylor Greene, uh, you know, I detest everything that she said, everything she stands for, because I don't even think she should be considered a Republican. She's so far extreme. Now, here's the problem. She is representative of a large contingent of pro-Trump uh, individuals who cloak themselves in the Republican Party's uh, uh, umbrella. And that's a huge problem, because saying that we have to wait two years to let the voters hopefully decide in that district yeah. uh, that her conduct as a member of Congress, and I think it's important to distinguish, the conduct she did before she was a member of Congress is despicable and disgusting, but she has also engaged in violent anti-Semitic uh, rhetoric, anti-Muslim rhetoric, and just plain old kooky behavior as an elected member of Congress, and she was only sworn in a few weeks ago. So yeah. what is the appropriate punishment for that, then? If the House finds that, if the House and its uh, collective wisdom finds that she should be censured, she should be removed. But that has to be done with, it needs to be bipartisan, must be done with Republican support. And you and I, we all know in this program and everyone watching, Republicans who support Trump or who have voters in their district who support Trump are loath to do anything that would be seen as an attack against one of Trump's loyal supporters. Yeah. Well, they had a phone call yesterday. Yeah. Well, the House Minority Leader, Kevin McCarthy of California, said uh, somewhat unpersuasively, oh, I'm going to call her in for a chat uh, next week. I mean, that's really a woodshedding kind of moment. Uh, Kevin McCarthy, who had said after the January 6th riot that uh, President Trump bore some responsibility, just the other day went to Mar-a-Lago and sort of licked his boots. So, I mean, what can we expect from Kevin McCarthy talking to Marjorie Taylor Greene? I'm, I'm afraid not much. Absolutely in her district, not. <laughs> in her district, Michael, there's no threat that leadership can make that they're going to have a primary opponent well-funded against her in two years if she doesn't get in line because all of her opponents would have to then be further extreme to the right, and it's only going to bring out the, the worst demons of the Republican Party in that district. That, that's actually a really interesting concept. Melba, react to that if you would. So I think at the end of the day, we are at a point of reckoning for the Republican Party. And if the Republican Party wants to be able, like I mentioned before, to hold that moral high ground, they're going to have to distance themselves from anti-Semitism, from racism, from you know illogical behavior, from dangerous behavior, from criminal behavior. If they fail to do so, then I believe that this is going to start to be the death knell of the Republican Party and those of, of us, because, you know, I really want to go back to the days where the debate could be about policy, not about basic human rights, not about lasers I, from outer space, right? Right. So, La laser, her, her crazy conspiracy <laughs> theory of lasers controlled by Jews setting fires in California, which is despicable and abhorrent. 
uh, if it weren't a first chuckle, but but she really and means for, these crazy things. For anybody who doesn't yeah. really understand that, just head to Twitter. It's there. <laughs> Rafael Yanni's Melba I, I Pearson. It's a lightning round roundtable. We love you both. Yeah. Thanks so much for being with Thank us. You. <laughs> Thank you for having us. Thank Thanks. You. We'll Thank be you. right back. Great to be with you this hour. Remember, we're online 24-7 at local10.com. And stay informed, get involved, have a great day.